0: and a downfield
1: touchdown Miami what a throw Devontae Parker holy smokes what a drive what is up Dolph fans and welcome to the drive time podcast part of the Miami Dolphins podcast network covering your team your Miami Dolphins How's it going, everybody? It is Wednesday. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, we're going to revisit the trade trades from Friday with the details from Peter King's weekly column, the value the Dolphins pulled on their side, the crazy Chris Greer trade numbers and data, and the player he says the Dolphins move back up to number 6-4, plus we're turning our attention completely to the draft all 11 free agent interviews are in the can, and we're taking a look at sleepers and positional prototypes with Ben Fennell of the NFL Network. All of that and a whole bunch more on this Wednesday, March the 31st edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. So before we get to my guest today, Peter King dropped his mega column on Sunday night And you really should read this thing every single week because, frankly, it's the best in the business. But it was especially interesting this week for Dolphins fans because of last week's big trade, big trades. We covered that thing comprehensively in the last Drive Time podcast, but how about some supplemental notes here from King? First, there's a blurb about why San Francisco was motivated to move up this early one month out. And you might recall the Jets and Colts trade from 2018. That one also occurred weeks before the draft. And King writes simply that Miami general manager Chris Greer has proven adept at maximizing compensation for his assets. So going up now ensured someone didn't swoop in with a better offer than the 49ers offer, according to Peter King. But that's not to say that the 49ers got some kind of bargain deal. They did not. Friday, we told you about the halls. The previous trade downs provided the team moving back and all the players they got from those trades. Well, Miami maximized this one big time. The Patrick Mahomes trade up back in 2017, KC to Buffalo from 27 to 10. To fall back 17 spots, they got a first round draft pick and a third round draft pick. That's it. Miami got two firsts to go down nine spots compared to Buffalo going down 17 spots. The Julio Jones trade in 2011, the Browns got a first, a second, and two fourth rounders to go from six to 27. They got less than Miami going down nine spots by going down 21 spots. Not bad at all, Chris Greer. Not bad at all. And King also notes that Greer's ability to wheel and deal has put Miami in position to continually restock the cupboards with eight first-round draft picks over a four-year period. And a quick aside, Albert Breer tweeted out on Friday that the Dolphins won 10 games last season with just three of those eight picks made, and Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus also lauded the trade, saying the Dolphins are doing whatever the hell they want right now, which... Brian Flores and Chris Greer have both said they can do whatever the hell they want without the hell part in there with all this draft capital. And most are saying that, in fact. Rich Eisen, anyone from the NFL Network, you might see all these tweets praising this trade because the Dolphins absolutely maximize their value. They wind up going down three spots at the end of the day for an additional third round draft pick and an additional first round draft pick. Also in this column from Peter King he mentions the idea that scouts and teams and decision makers might be more inclined to push assets into future drafts because of the uncertainty of this year's draft. So many players in this class did not play a football season in 2020. There's no live in-person medical, no live in-person meetings on the whiteboard. All that stuff doesn't exist this year. And next season, we should have a full college football season, a full complement of the scouting combine, pro days, and all that fun stuff. As the world gets back to normal, it makes more sense to have more picks in those future years than maybe it does this year. Back to the article real quick. And this is from Peter King. And it's not new for Chris Greer to do this kind of thing. He's now made eight trades involving first round draft picks since he took the job over in 2016. And King praises Greer for being an outside the box thinker and says it has put the Dolphins in tremendous position with another great trade, maximizing the Laramie Tunzel trade back from 2019 and continuing to milk that resource for additional premium assets. Finally, the final point that King writes, actually, let's go ahead and make this the penultimate point about quarterback flexibility. You know, if you listen to this podcast, you know what I think about Tua Tungavailoa. I've always thought about Tua Tungavailoa's ability to play at this level. And I think we're going to see that this season with, with what I think he can be. But let's just say for one second, it doesn't go that way. And they have to go back into the quarterback market. Well, Miami now gives themselves future capital in case they have to circle back and explore either a veteran quarterback trade or a trade-up to the draft to get a quarterback in those future drafts. Maybe it's to find a veteran proven player to supplement Tua's to offense as he is at the controls. Dolphins have just given themselves Ultimate flexibility at the quarterback position and at every other position across the board. And finally, our last point, let's just go ahead and lead this, read this last part verbatim. Regarding the logic of the second trade, it has to come down to one thing, King writes. Miami had to have wanted certainty that it could nab one of the four great pass catchers in this draft, tight end Kyle Pitts or wideouts Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddle, or Devontae Smith. That's possible at 12. That's certain at 6, He writes. And knowing how smart a personnel guy Chris Greer is, it would not surprise me now knowing he was in position to get a great receiver if he tried to move one of his wideouts, maybe even Devontae Parker, if the compensation were right. So King's just kind of spitballing there, but he talks about those four playmakers. I want to go ahead and touch on that before we get to our guest here on this Wednesday edition of the Drive Time Podcast. So if you go after one of those targets at number six, what does that make the offense look like for Miami? Well, we start there with Jalen Waddle. We've talked about this on previous podcasts. If you want to defend the speed of a Jalen Waddle and a Will Fuller on the defense, just go look at what teams had to do to Houston with Will Fuller and Kenny Stills. You had to play too high safety because both those guys could take the top off the defense on either side. They could split your safeties. You had to account for them vertically down the football field. It incorporates more flexibility for the RPO game because you influence the linebackers and safeties, and all of a sudden, all you have to do is win a two-way go inside because the ball handling of Tua takes care of the linebacker sucking up as he rides that mesh point, and the speed backs the safeties off, creating that vulnerability, that soft spot in the middle of the field. And of course, you have to hit some of those deep shots to maintain that level of respect, and if I may just go on to another tangent here, can we stop with cementing narratives as some unchanging idea with a sample size smaller than a week's worth of at-bats, as it were. I mean, what I mean by that is, remember when Ryan Tannehill couldn't throw the deep ball, and I'm using air quotes here, and the only reasoning behind it was because the numbers just weren't there? And the numbers weren't there because Mike Wallace was the smallest, most precise, deep target in the history of deep ball targets. I mean, he had no problem hitting Brian Hartline and Charles Clay in stride down the field. Then he goes to Tennessee, and guess what? Now, He's got AJ Brown, and he's tossing up 40 plus yard touchdowns every other week, it seems. So scout the ability, not the box score. And I'm convinced the only way to arrive at the whole air quotes again, to a can't throw the deep ball end air quotes idea is if you just haven't seen the kid play. Because I posted a clip of him tossing a dime to Jalen Waddle in 2018 at Tennessee, which by the way, Waddle caught 21 of 26 passes. 20 or more yards down the football field in his college career, an absurd deep ball producing machine. And all of those Alabama highlight videos are just bomb after bomb. Who do you think threw him those deep passes? Waddle only played four games this year. So most of those deep balls came from the lefty. And I'm actually looking at an article right now titled Tua Tungavailoa's passing chart shows just how insane his downfield passing has been. So I don't know. It's, it's there for you to look at. And Waddle can do that. He's electric with the ball in his hands. He's dominant as a punt returner. He can turn swings, screens, and flats into touchdowns. And he finally gives you a dangerous option on over routes and drags those shallow crossers, those intermediate crossers. I think he checks a lot of boxes this offense could use for this young quarterback in general. Kyle Pitts, the middle of the field presence that he presents would be invaluable to a young quarterback. We saw Tua attack down the middle of the field successfully to Mike Gesicki last year. We've seen him drive those slants, those digs, those square-ins, and work between the underneath hook and curl defenders, those linebackers, play off of the leverage of defensive backs and manipulate the accuracy of his throws based upon the look of the defense. Well, this is an area where Pitts can take those types of throws to another level because he threatens leverage, he threatens your understanding of what is open and what's not open, and he also has the athletic ability to get open and to create separation. There just aren't that many clubs that can get this athletic 6'6 body into a nasty split, which a nasty split is just a little bit detached from the offensive line, and run RPO from there. The Dolphins utilize Gasicki in that regard a little bit. Having both would make things tricky, and for more than just the RPO threat, the matchup ability this would create. You could go empty with Gasicki, Fuller, and Parker, or Fuller and another speed merchant on the field. That's where you go at receiver with a running back that can also function as a route runner. And that's where I look to go with Kyle Pitts. How can I just be indefensible with a 12 personnel package that can line up balanced with two in-line tight ends and run the ball down your throat, or we can spread it out and go empty? There's not a defense on earth equipped to match up to that. To me, it's revolutionary. Devontae Smith. If there's anybody in this draft that screams Dolphin more than Smith, I have not seen him. The character, the fact that he's already praised for his knowledge, understanding, and approach, and the feel for the game of that of a 10-year veteran is just outstanding. And he's so, so, so good as a route runner. I think if you have Smith, you call plays where it's basically just, if Devontae has a one-on-one, that's where the ball's going because you know he's going to deconstruct that cornerback in a way that one, makes it easy for the quarterback to make the read and the quarterback has an easy decision because of the separation created and two it creates big plays after the catch ability because he wins by so much and gets so many dbs on their heels and turned around go watch his tape and the defensive backs in the sec they're having a hard time finding out which direction he's going they're on their heels a lot he really puts them in a bind I don't think Devonte is as specialized as the other two, but he's the best route runner, and I feel like he's the most surefire player of this group in terms of his floor, but his ceiling is also incredibly high too. Daniel Jeremiah on the Move the Sticks podcast the other day was talking about the wide receiver class and Smith in particular, and I was actually thinking about this myself as I seriously have one hell of a time separating he and Waddle. I go back and forth with Smith and Waddle all the time, but he said every time they go back and look at their draft hits and misses, The one thing he always regrets not valuing higher is route running and the craft, and that's Devontae Smith. Fourth, and finally, Jamar Chase. Big physical speed guy. Now, you don't see the speed and quickness at the line, but where it really shows up is when you get down the field. He has this ability to run away once he builds up that speed, and that combination is pretty rare. But here's the thing. In a way, it's almost redundant to what Devontae Parker does, and that could be great for some offenses. But I don't think it is for this team, for this quarterback. We've talked about the timing, the rhythm, the precision of Tua hitting his speed guys. His game isn't the YOLO ball into coverage the way it was with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Now, if Fitz was the quarterback, I'd say, yeah, let's go ahead and replicate Devontae Parker and go crazy all year with him, Parker, and Gasicki. But that's just not the construction of this offense, in my opinion. Chase might give you something you need that's a weapon from the inside. At 5'11", he has the ability to both press slot corners with a mixture of physicality and vertical playmaking, which is a dangerous thing to defend against in today's NFL, but I'm just not sure if that's what fits best. We're going to find out soon enough here. Draft is less than a month away, and I cannot wait. Let's turn this thing over now to my guest on today's edition of the Drive Time Podcast. He produces draft content for the NFL Network. He's on the Journey to the Draft Podcast on the Eagles Podcast Network with Fran Duffy. He is Ben Fennell. And joining me now on the Drive Time Podcast is Ben Fennell and Ben... We're a month out, man. Christmas morning is almost here, right? Or is this entire process kind of Christmas morning for you?
0: Well, it's really turned into this 365 animal, so it's getting close. We're definitely in December if we're looking forward to that Christmas and opening presents as we're uh, just about a month away from this draft in Cleveland. And it's been a long process, and it's been a unique process in this cycle in particular, and I'm kind of just excited we're uh, almost at the finish line, which just starts another race for 2022.
1: Aside from the combine and general human interaction, (laughs) one of the things I miss the most is your on-field shots on Saturday at college campuses, but also your scenic shots. Like You've shared the BYU photo so many times, and I love it every time because it's it's so gorgeous. What's the one thing you miss most about being on campus, being in a stadium on Saturdays in the fall?
0: Well, it's going to be tough to list just one thing. (laughs) Uh, Just a reminder, I didn't go to a college with a football team. I went to a city school with a lot of sidewalks and concrete jungles, so being able to go out to these meccas of college football, i soak it all in. So I love the flying into random airports and drives from major cities and going to that random lunch spot that's been there for 80 years and all the father-daughters on game days and the pageantry and the history, the culture. I love it exponentially more than NFL games. I feel like NFL games, you're in a cookie cutter city. You fly into that city, You stay in a corporate hotel. Um, there are some challenges with college, obviously. Sometimes you go to Tuscaloosa and the only place to stay is a holiday inn. Um, but if you're not too picky, you get to see some really unique areas of the country. So I uh, was very disappointed. I wasn't on the road this past season due to COVID and this world falling apart. But I uh, hope to definitely pick it back up in uh, 2021
1: college football is uh, it's to me, it was, it was the sport that suffered the most from the lack of fans and the lack of the, you know, the environment is really, really so important and so crucial to the entire sport. So I, man, I can't wait for this season and, and hopefully things are more back to normal this year. And speaking of that, we've got some pro days going off. You mentioned you were kind of peeking off in the corner of your eye here during, you know, before we got on the, on the air here, looking at the Alabama pro day right now on uh, on NFL network. I want to go ahead and start there and talk to you about the pro day process. Like, you know, we've seen all these times that have been posted that are, to me, substantially better than what we get at the combine every year by considerable amounts. Like the 40-yard dashes are lower, the, the jumps are, are longer and higher. What do you make of the way the pro day process has played out? And when we get to this, I guess, and on the second part of the question, who do you think has really helped themselves the most in the pro day process?
0: Well, I feel like the scores are on par with pro days of the last 5, 10, 20 history of pro days. They're just in a much more controlled environment, the players are more comfortable. Yes, there are maybe some tricks and trends of the world that you know have alluded to some better times or some notorious 39-yard tracks downwind, <laughs> downhill, that always produce slightly better uh, test scores that have been running jokes in the scouting community. But it's really just a comfortability factor of the schools and the lack of a streamlined baseline testing process is going to lead to high-variance results. And that's the beautiful thing of the combine. It's a much more uh, controlled atmosphere by outside third parties, and everything is kind of streamlined in the same situation for every player. And I think that's why the scouting community values the combine. At the end of the day, this process is just very interesting, this cycle. And it all started last cycle with the lack of pro days. And it's really the pro days that start the process for next class and not having the pro day circuit last year in combination with not having scouts on campus for the most part in the fall, the scouting community is just behind the eight ball with general vetting of the players. You can watch every snap these players have ever played and figure out the player. Now we just need to figure out the person, the potential coworker, the teammate, the member of society, And being around the player on campus pro days, you can talk to the position coach and his academic advisor and strength and conditioning coach, maybe some teammates and start to put together all the pieces about the person. And as we both know, the person you're drafting has become just as important as the player you're drafting. And some may say it's even more important. The success and failures in the NFL are rarely for ability. These guys are all very talented, very athletic, very strong But what separates is typically the player and the employee. So these pro days and even the combine, Travis, we have to remember why the combine was created medicals. Then we said, Hey, if we're getting them all here in one spot, let's work them out. Hey, if we're working them out, we might as well interview them. But all we see on TV is the workouts. So we think that's the most important, just like pro days. We see the times, we see the workouts. We think that's the most important, but it's really what goes on behind the scenes and just the general vetting people talking to people, Doctors poking and prodding the cattle—all that stuff—I think has so much more value uh, than the on-field workouts and what's in front of our faces.
1: Yeah, you, you talk about the the medical aspect of Indy. Just last year was my first combine, and I was so. We we talk about Christmas morning. I was kid in a candy store, just kind of perusing the entire convention center, going from podium to podium. And the central location of everything in Indy, the Skywalks, man. I love that city. I've been there one time. I absolutely loved it. I hope we get that back in the near future. We had good weather
0: last year, too. You got to use those Skywalks when we have blizzards. You literally cannot (laughs) step outside. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I also was a late ad, too, so I had to get one of the hotels that was not like... I wasn't the JW or anything like that. I was off to the side, so I kind of had a a distance walk. So I was definitely in in the Skywalks because... I don't do I don't do below fifty very well, Ben. That's why Miami's a great place for me. <laughs> so so that was that was fun. I'll hopefully get back to that. You mentioned, you know, getting to know the person. I think we both can talk about last year's 29th pick in the draft. I thought for sure you were gonna mention him. Uh, we'll we'll leave it at that. It, clearly the person is very important when it comes to, to, you know, what you get in the player. But you also mentioned these pro days again, and we're gonna go back to this because, you know, I watched the, uh, Ellerson Smith and Spencer Brown from Northern, Northern Iowa, or the Penn state guys that just Micah Parsons and Jason Oway, who just blew this thing up. You talked about how those have been consistent with the pro day, you know, the pro days of the past, but who do you think has really helped themselves the most in this, in this run up to the draft, in the pro day process, these multiple pro day schools are having who has really helped themselves the most above anyone else you think?
0: Yeah. And I guess my final point just on the importance of the pro days are there are some players with major gray areas and question marks that we haven't seen on the field in 2020 because they opted out or maybe injuries or um, so getting general measurables and some things on players that we haven't seen in a while is also very important. And it feels like we're drafting players, you know, at a high school to the NBA, you know, when you have guys like Gregory Rousseau that's have, barely 500 snaps in their college career or Walker little or hasn't been on the field in two years or really interesting prospects with medical concerns like Talanoa Hufanga, just the boomer bus aspect. There are so many prospects that just have so many gray areas and uncertainties, but you have to remember, that's where you get the star players too. That's where you get the Kobe Bryant's and Kevin Garnett's um, even though there are a lot of busts out of high school as well. So just that boomer bust factor in this class is just, seemingly dominating a lot of prospects but the pro day workouts yeah this is a great opportunity for guys to show off the height weight speed and explosiveness you stu- you mentioned it those penn state guys track speed all over the place with that roster michael parsons jason Oway Owe is one of the more interesting players in that height weight speed potential upside boom bus player with very little production very little nuance to his game very little uh, technical aspect to his game, but he looks the part and brings a lot of God-given abilities that defensive line coaches think, Hey, we can't teach that. I could teach him to rush the passer. I can't teach you to be 255 and run four, three. So it's all kind of figure out what can we do with these players as far as developing them. But there's players at every workout, whether it's the big uh, height, weight, speed receiver, Nico Collins at Michigan running in the four fours at nearly two twenty. The athletic tackles, Brady Christensen, I'm so happy, had a great workout for BYU. Zach Wilson, rightfully so, has stolen a lot of the buzz and the thunder out of BYU. That old line, that's a run first offense. They blocked their butts off and blocked their butts off forever when Zach Wilson was running around making plays. And nobody got their name called this year. It was all Zach Wilson, 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 rightfully so, as the quarterbacks get the the love and the attention and the criticism. Brady Christensen and some of those other guys on that O-line, really good players. Some corners, Greg Newsome out of Northwestern, Robert Rochelle, both extremely high-end testers, high-end athletes. And one sleeper that has kind of been getting some buzz at the end of the season and completely took off on his pro day, Milton Williams at Louisiana Tech. Kind of a defensive end, defensive tackle hybrid with just oozing explosiveness and length for days. So uh, a lot of guys that have been able to take their pro days And create a little buzz as far as the draft stock.
1: That's why I wanted to get you on here, because we have, you know, we've covered the top parts of the draft so so in depth for the run-up. You mentioned the 12-month process that is the draft. I mean, we have so much time to go over, you know, the SEC and watch the top of the line guys, the Kyle Pitts versus Patrick Sertan matchup, that type of thing. And it's fun to do that, but I also love getting into day three stuff here too, which we'll circle back here and come back to that. But I want to play this game with you. And maybe it's one guy, maybe it's two guys. I won't limit you to to a number here, but I want to play. Prototypes by position of need, and I'll go ahead and tell you okay. the prototype here and of, of what I think the Dolphins have done, or what they've what they've kind of assembled in terms of their ideal prospect at these positions. And we'll start at running back. I think most folks agree that running back is a need for the Dolphins, and I didn't really have a a general Dolphins theme here. The only one I had that was that was evident of Brian Flores here in Miami was that they typically go with a back. What game to game even, whether it was Savon Ahmed or Miles Gaskin or Jordan Howe, whoever it might have been, they usually get they usually go 75% plus workload with the number one back. So that's kind of my first thought. And then also going back over Coach Studisville, Eric Studisville, the run game coordinator and now co-offensive coordinator here in Miami, he's always had two hundred and twenty plus pound backs. Travis, Henry, Willis, McGahee, Marshawn Lynch, No Sean Marino, on and on and on. A physical pounder that can kind of do it all. So if that's your prototype you're looking at at the running back position, Ben, who's that guy? Maybe two guys.
0: Yeah. Some really good needs on the team. I definitely could see their need for kind of a bruiser between the tackle guy to beat you up. I want to see Miami commit more to the run game. They are 26 in the NFL as far as running the ball on first and 10, not nearly enough on first down 24th in running the ball in the first half. That's purely volume. Just not committing to the run enough with a young quarterback that came from a run first offense in college, put him in a position to be successful and replicate his success. Let's run the ball. So can definitely see a need for a bruiser back Can definitely see the need for a scat back and a guy that really excels on third down. That's a pure pass catching threat out of the backfield. But looking at these 220 found backs, there aren't many in this class. And they're kind of a dying breed in college football. They're not the ones that are high-production guys. They aren't guys that are going to test particularly well, and they're rarely the guys that contribute in the pass game. I think it's kind of slipping people's mind that Najee Harris is 230 pounds. But outside of him, it's not a whole lot. I mean, Trey Sermon is pushing 220, Kylan Hill 215, Larry Roundtree at Missouri 215, Ramadre Stevenson at Oklahoma is probably 225. But none of those guys are particularly high-end testers, so they're not going to be the 4-4 type of backs. These are going to be those bell cow guys that you want to move the pile and give it to them on first down and hopefully set up a game and finish a game in the fourth quarter, those those type of presents uh, in the backfield. Not a whole lot to choose from. Um, so, you know, it's kind of slim pickings out there, and they aren't the sexiest type of players to talk about.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where the Dolphins go, given the fact that there is so much RPO, you know, Incorporated in the offense with Tua Tonga low and kind of how those guys work off of each other in that run pass game on offense. Now, now speak-
0: to get that good balance of the RPO like he had in Bama, the Bruiser back between the tackles, and that shifty slot receiver to run the inbreakers and slants behind them, and then it's a pick your poison defensively. Commit to the run, stop the shifty slot receivers couple pieces away from both of those aspects, but I think they're working their way to replicating that type of
1: offense. And that's where we go next here, the receiver position. I'm, I'm curious because, you know, Devontae Parker, for what he what his size is, people forget that he does kick inside and play slot quite a bit, so mostly an X and a slot. And then you've got a, a collection of guys, Albert Wilson, Lynn Bowden, Jakeem Grant, guys that typically play inside. Uh, the, I guess the prototype I would go with here, this is the one position where I don't really have a complete data set for you, but I will say that guys that can play multiple spots. So who is the best looking prospect in this class that can play inside, outside and not lose production on either position?
0: Well, I think this team could really use a more segmented true slot receiver. I think Devontae's worn the hat of being the big slot or even that move tight end on the inside. I think Will Fuller is an interesting speed option and they clearly have a desire to find some sort of slot gadgety player whether it's Jakeem Grant, Lynn Bowden. Don't forget Kirk Merritt at Arkansas State is a very much an explosive gadgety player as well. I think he was a D1 transfer, if I'm not mistaken, that ended up at Arkansas State. But yeah, anyways, this, this draft has tons of dynamic slot receiving options that I would love to see paired with the speed of a Fuller and with the size of a Parker, whether that's Kadarius Toney or Elijah Moore, Amari Rogers, Shai Smith, Amir smith Marset. DS grades. There's all these guys that are four, four receivers that don't have tons of size, but that's okay. They're great for the RPO game, the quick game, the screens, the manufactured yards after catch, put the ball in their hands any way possible and let them do the dirty work. And I think Tua needs more weapons around him like that of easy offense to say, Hey, this is a five yard throw that could turn into a 60 yard touchdown. We need someone to take the small and make it a big play. And in this draft, do not pass on one of these guys on day two. I think one of these guys would be a great plug-and-play option, even if it is a Rondell Moore that people say, oh, he's five, 7 at a slot receiver. Put him in the backfield. Call oh, him a running back for all I care. Are you allowed to catch passes from back there? Alvin Kamara and Chris McCaffrey and those guys have done a pretty good job doing it. So I think the Dolphins can definitely use a player like this and might be able to knock out – you know, two birds at one stone by grabbing that slot receiver that could also win from the backfield on third down, like we just talked about.
1: I've been talking about Rondell Moore since that freshman season debut against Northwestern. My one of my favorite college football performances of all time. He was electric that night. And you also mentioned that kind of size concern. Just real quick, I just saw this two-two at will 155 pounds. That blew me away. I I I've been <laughs> high on two-two, but 155. That's lighter than I. That's that's lighter than I am, and I'm not a big guy. <laughs> so that's.
0: I think so. I looked it up. He was 141 in his high school recruiting page. Dang,
1: that's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, interesting that football was his choice at that size, but he, he certainly can play the game. So we'll see. That <laughs> that makes the that makes the argument so much more fun when you kind of go against these. Traditional prototypes. So speaking of prototypes, going to the offensive line here, talking about kind of rounding out this offense for Tua Loa and this, this young group that led the National Football League in snaps for rookies and on the offensive side as well. And it seems like the Dolphins have prioritized athletic ability, but also size above all. And I go back to a sign they made in 2019 out of the American... Uh, l- the AAF, I forgot what it stands for. <laughs> they brought over, they brought over a guy, Jared Jones Smith, who had like an 85 inch wingspan was like six foot seven. <laughs> he was the first guy I saw on the field my first day at training camp. And I was like, Oh my God, that is a grown man right there. So they, they've gone after Eric flower, Solomon, Kimley, Robert Hunt, Austin Jackson. And most of those guys are, are bigger offensive linemen. A couple of them have the athletic traits like an Austin Jackson. So wingspan, athletic ability, sheer size. Who do you think checks those boxes in this year's class? So when I
0: look across the board here, some of those names just mentioned, Robert Hunt, Solomon Kinley, Eric Flowers, currently three out of the five pegged starting offensive linemen at the moment. They're all a certain type. These are a burly, big, mauling type that want to go downhill. We don't always talk about downhill offensive linemen. These are people movers. You want to get vertical displacement as opposed to the popular lateral and outside zone game where you have offensive linemen moving east and west with really good quickness off the ball. The Dolphins have a a type. They want to go north-south and bang you vertically. So you have to make sure you find someone that can bang vertically in the draft. And there's definitely different types. Some of those guys we talked about, Samuel Cosme, Brady Christensen at tackle may not be for the Dolphins. They're going to want more of that heavy type, maybe that Tevin Jenkins out of Oklahoma State, maybe a James Hudson out of Michigan. A lot of these types that you're projecting may to slide into guard. Um, maybe it's a Deontay Brown out of Alabama who's pushing 350. Doesn't look good. Won't be for every scheme. But if you're a vertical team, if you're a power team like the Dolphins, like the Ravens, those types of offenses like the Steelers, uh, like the Browns, they're going to be great fits, so I think when you look at run styles and the type you're looking for, really, really important when projecting, and the Dolphins kind of ebbing one way when the rest of the league is looking for much lighter, much more athletic offensive linemen.
1: Yeah, certainly a point of the investments last year is they they went heavy on the offensive line, two premium picks, then Solomon Kimley in the fourth round who wound up starting opening day I think it was 13 or 14 games for this Dolphins team last season. So we'll see where they go this year. And then another position that I think there could be some more investment in is the, I, I guess we'll call it defensive line because this Dolphins defensive line, there really isn't much of an edge and interior distinction. I mean, Zach Sealer kicks out and plays end, Christian Wilkins kicks out and plays end at that 300 pound, 300 plus pound, you know, body type. And it kind of reminds me of the old Patriots with Ty Warren, I think that's my best example for a guy that kind of plays that five tech, three tech, and can even kick out in a four man front and rush from outside. Now, the one true edge we do have was a dominant player last year who was heavy both in weight and his hands, 260 pounds, heavy handed Emmanuel Ogbaugh, length also crucial. They signed Shaq Lawson last year, 32 and a half inch arms, but Ogbaugh was the one who really excelled in the scheme and checked in with a 35 and a half inch arm. So guys that can They can play inside, but moonlight outside, guys that are big, heavy-handed. Who fits that bill in this year's draft class? I think I have an idea of one guy in particular.
0: So if we're looking for somebody like Emmanuel Agba, heavy-handed, a little bit on the heavy side for an edge, a guy that can slide inside. But some of the negatives of Agba, stiff-hipped in the lower half, but he's able to win because he's so strong, he's so relentless, doesn't have to come off the field, which you look at a lot of these light edge rushers, kind of liabilities on early downs and they're really just sub-package players. So you find find guys that can play every down, typically more productive players. So if you want a guy that represents and reflects Agba's skill set, maybe in the first round with a quiddy pay out of Michigan is a similar type of player. Explosive, but a little stiff in the lower half, you know, but an absolutely relentless player that can slide inside. Boogie Basham out of Wake Forest is one of my favorite, very similar player. These two This type of player is what I love, Travis, because there's nothing finesse about them. They're going to play the run. They're going to look to go through you. They can win inside, outside, through you with that three-way go. They're not what I call runaround types. And what I mean by runaround, speedy edge rushers that just want to run around tackles. They have no problem playing with physicality and brute strength at the point of attack. And maybe on day three, a Cameron Sample is a similar type of guy. Doesn't look good. He's 6'2", maybe 275. He's got a big butt, tree trunk legs, (laughs) doesn't have that wiry athletic frame that we get excited about off the edge. But that's okay because he plays so hard and he's so strong. And I'd maybe like to see more of a complementative piece on this front. So as much as we look at the Ogbaz and now we have Bernardic McKinney who will probably rush off the edge a little bit, like to see a little bit more of a complementative skill set, too. Maybe somebody with a little bit more twitch to their game. Maybe somebody to threaten tackles high side and then flush out that quarterback to the big guys up front. So if they maybe want to go away from the 275 guys and go down to the 230, 240s, maybe a Quincy Roche out of Miami, the Temple transfer. Chris the second out of Duke. Probably can't play on first and second down in the NFL because he's 230 pounds, but one of the loosest, twitchiest edge rushers in the class, Shaka Tony out of Penn State. Long story short, Travis, Miami Dolphins were top 10 in sacks, hits, pressure last year. They don't need production. I think they need some more personnel. Too much blitzing last year. Gave up way too many plays out the backside. So what am I saying? Find players that can win for themselves. Win one-on-ones get after the quarterback without always having to dial up blitzes. So I want guys that can win. So whether it's the Quitty Pays, Basham Samples, or maybe some of the twitched up guys, I think they definitely have some personnel needs up front.
1: That's a great segue into our, our next position group here, talking about the – the position that really did kind of drive the pressure in the scheme of, you know, the scheme up pressure in that linebacker group, and then playing all the cover zero and the press man on the on the, uh, the back end, there, like you mentioned, is these multiple linebackers. We see Kyle Van Noy go by the wayside, and Jerome Baker has done so many different things in his career here in Miami, whether it's, you know, off ball, he's even played some edge and, and rushed the passer. He does so much blitzing from the A-gaps and mugged up in there in that A-gap pressure look. And then we see bernardrick mckinney come in here and he kind of does that similar thing in terms of rushing inside but he's a different player right much heavier so i look at this group as just versatile players that can do multiple things landon roberts another one of these guys that can play stack linebacker very well but just sheer versatility at that linebacker spot and if it is going to be more of that scheme pressure like you mentioned there ben who kind of fits that mold best in this draft class
0: you know and the dolphins are a great example of how they use their personnel. This is a linebacking group that moves forward. So they like the bigger types, the run-plugging types, and in sub-packages, they're going to be rushers. They're going to be pass rushers. We want to get our nickel, dime, even dollar out there to cover the backs and tight ends of the world. So this fallacy out there of when we talk linebacking prospects and the first question that comes out, oh, can they cover? It's a pass NFL. They don't ask their linebackers to cover. And there's a lot of teams in the league that don't put coverage responsibilities, particularly man-to-man, on their linebackers. And that's okay. So it's just really important to note what they're asked to do and what we're looking for at the next level. But to fill that Van Noy role, that Bernard McKinney role, that off-ball guy that's going to come play off the edge, that Sam Backer, that's really who Micah Parsons is at the top of the draft. And that's who Zavin Collins is out of Tulsa, similar 6'4", 260 off-ball guy that's going to rush and blitz on third down. Got news for you. The Dolphins probably aren't going to be in the market for either of those guys. They're probably going to be first-round type of players. It's going to be tough to get their hands on them. But I've been coming around on this Derek Barnes kid out of Purdue who's a similar type of guy who's 6'1", 250, can play off-ball on early downs and is actually a really good pass rusher on third downs off the edge, strong player. It's one of these guys that isn't particularly big, but he has this barrel chest and really long arms, and he's explosive. It's the perfect three-tier traits that you want out of this position. So, Micah Parsons, Zabin Collins, and Derek Barnes, get your hands on one of those guys.
1: Yeah, Micah Parsons playing defensive end early on, coming out into college's defensive end, that pass rush arsenal. He's a fun player to watch. And uh,
0: Before he got to Penn State, some of the camp series at defensive end, I mean, whooping the who's who of yeah, tackles, yeah. whether it's <laughs> Jedrick Wills, Walker Little, um, you know Alex Leatherwood, all these hoo-hoo players, and they're in just shorts and t-shirt, uh, which is just really fun to watch. He was a prolific pass rushing threat at high school.
1: And and if these linebackers are not the drivers of the defense, it's definitely the defensive backs. I mean, I would argue that it, it is the DBs, and and for my money, the best the best outside cornerback tandem in the National Football League, and Byron Jones and Xavier Howard, but with Eric Rowe and Bobby McCain and, and Brandon Jones and Nick Needham and all these guys that contributed, you mentioned the dollar defensive package. Ben, it's so nice to talk to a, a non-Dolphins-related entity that knows that because it's so rare that people <laughs> understand. It's not always 3-4-4-3. Three, four, four, three. Usually those are your sub-packages in 2020. So we talk about the defensive backs, and again, the, the, the hallmarks of a Brian Flores defensive back. At cornerback, athletic, long speed, press skills. And Byron and X are stylistically similar, but athletically they're not. Noah Igbenogany certainly was a freak athlete coming out. But then it's safety, and that's kind of where I'm more focused here because I think at cornerback between Igbenogany, Jones, and Howard, and Needham, and Justin Coleman, I think you're probably, for now, okay. I I will never doubt Brian Flores taking a cornerback in the draft because he loves the position so much. But I think at the safety spot, Eric Rowe and Bobby McCain were so adept at communicating but they also were former cornerbacks that can come down and cover and Brandon Jones at Texas was a was his best position to me was slot in that in college so he comes here he plays safety all three of these guys are studious players that are always well prepared they communicate their leaders so in this class at that safety group who is the best in terms of guys that can come down and cover in the slot guys that can communicate and rotate and play multiple spots like who fits the Dolphins bill in the defensive backfield
0: yeah, I love that Justin Coleman pickup. I thought he was a great piece for the uh, Lions the past couple of years. Really feisty nickel. It's a really big nickel, too. But if you want a safety that can come with some coverage skills, that can play the back end and not a liability and run support, which is really what everybody wants. That undersized nickel third corner is really a dying breed because he was getting picked on now in the perimeter blocking. He was a liability and run support. Everybody's still playing nickel, but they want three safeties. So what does that mean? We want a safety. That can cover, just like you talked about, converting all these corners to the middle of the field. There's a couple intriguing options. I love Divine Diablo at a Virginia Tech, former four star receiver at 6'3, 225. Travis, I swear he ran a, the wrong route one day and they kicked him out of the receiver room and said, <laughs> Go to the DB room, or he dropped a pass in the jugs machine or something because he is a very impressive football player, guy with good coverage skills, ball skills, good size. Anyone that's playing that kind of cover four scheme where that safety's triggering down a hill playing over number two and the tight ends quite often. And Richie Grant at a central Florida, I think is the complete package at safety. Now the issue with Richie Grant, he's not this all world tester that we want at safety. He's not Jamal Adams or Earl Thomas or Derwin James or Buddha Baker and running four fours and lifting 225 25, 25 times. He's not that type of guy. He just checks every box in like a B plus sense, at the safety position. He can play the post. He could play half field. He can be a robber, really tough in rung support and put on the one-on-ones against the senior bowl. He's locking up slot receivers and outside receivers like no problem. Um, I think him and his teammate, Aaron Robinson, the Alabama transfer at UCF, another interesting player. He's a little bit more of a true nickel, but another guy that's been tough and over the middle of the field. But as we're talking about scheme and just like I said, I would like them to dial the blitzing back a little bit. I want them to dial the man coverage back a little bit, too. It's just a very, very stressful scheme on the defense. It's a proactive scheme. So they make some plays by being aggressive, but way too many liabilities and back-end confusion, busts, plays over the top. And I feel like some of the best defenses in the NFL are starting to dial things back into a more of a archaic, vanilla type of defense. Of saying, we don't really know how to stop offenses right now. Let's play way back, force the ball in front of us. Let's rally to the football and make tackles. But we have to limit explosive plays. And I think zone coverages are dominating the NFL right now. And the best defenses are playing it, whether it's Tampa or L.A. or the Packers or Indianapolis. Seems like these zone coverages are the safer defenses. So I'd like to see the Dolphins kind of mix up their schemes and uh, general philosophies just a little bit in 2021.
1: That's definitely fascinating. I haven't really heard that approach, but it makes it makes sense the way you explain it. So I would be curious to see. Well, like you know. Travis,
0: listen to Nick Saban's quote that went around earlier yeah, this week. Yep. And he talked about you can't just run the ball and play defense anymore. And defenses are really at a loss for how to stop offenses on yep. Saturdays and Sundays. I think the rules need to help them a little bit with RPOs and things like that. But it's almost like a until we can figure this out, we're going to go with the safe vanilla coverages prevent the ball from going over our head. We're going to dare you to go 10, 12 plays on us. And when you watch Steve Sarkeesian do his clinic, the offense coordinator Bama that went to Texas, he said, we have to generate explosive plays because I can't go 10, 12 plays. One of my guys will screw up. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny to have that kind of conflicting style of saying offenses want explosive plays. Don't allow it from a defensive yeah. perspective. So spinning this back to the Dolphins, heavy man coverage, heavy pressure scheme, you dictate the action, but it's very risky and it's a very high variance way to play defense.
1: It might be more of the the week to week game plan idea because you go back to the season, Jared Goff, Jimmy Garoppolo, the joe flacco court you know those teams that that came to miami they got a whooping on this defense when we saw patrick right. mahomes or josh allen the story was different and even though even though right. we turned over mahomes four times they still had the explosive plays like you mentioned the 2034 right. and every plays.
0: defense has pros and cons yep. if there was something that covered everything everybody would play on every yeah. down <laughs> so you know i sit here i do a lot of stuff for indy and green bay they play a lot of zone what happens in zone you give up a lot of completions so on third and five, when you give up six, yeah, social media is on fire <laughs> saying, get up there and press them, sure. disrupt, why are we not playing press? And then the press teams are saying, can we you know, keep the ball in front of us? Can we prevent it from going over our head one of these plays? So everything has pros and cons to it.
1: You mentioned the Packers there. I know you work with the Eagles too, and you're wearing the Acme Packer shirt. I know that's that's your team. That's the that's the team you root for. But uh, I wanted to finish with this because we, we mentioned you do do the Journey to the Draft podcast with with uh, Fran Duffy. Great stuff you guys do over there. And you know the Dolphins recently struck a trade with the Eagles to go back from or to go up from 12 to six. And you and I talked about this how both the Dolphins and Eagles have gathered future draft capital based upon their picks this year. And I was curious to get your take on the idea of falling back into future drafts when we talk about the uncertainty of this year, how there's so much boom-bust potential because of the nature of this year's draft class and not getting to know the person you know, with all those in-person visits. So what do you take on the Dolphins and Eagles, both getting future draft capital, and what's your general takeaway on that trade?
0: So I've heard different sentiments from different scouts and some people that work uh, with organizations. Some feel that there's a lot of hesitation with this draft that they would rather stockpile picks in 2021 or excuse me 2022 which looks like a much deeper draft class as you have a lot of these seniors given a free year of eligibility that went back uh, that probably didn't need to so next year's crop is going to be much deeper give them more time to vet the players and figure it out but I've heard the sentiment the other way of saying there's room for steals in this draft there's room for teams to make mistakes and other teams to capitalize so I see some looking at this draft as kind of a opportunity to maybe get some steals on players, and there's so many great areas. Um, you know, a player like Walker Little, like we talked about from Stanford, hasn't been on the field in two years. Travis, he could go in the first round, yeah. And I'd be like, okay, he could go in the fifth round. i will be like, okay. So there's a lot of guys like that that I think some teams are going to think they're the smartest people in the room and go run a card up on a guy that everybody else has in a later round. So. Uh, to spin this back to the Dolphins, the Eagles, the top 10 of this draft, I could have told you two months ago, if you don't need a quarterback,
1: yeah. you
0: should be putting up billboards to the rest of the NFL <laughs> to say, come trade with us, come get your guy. And I think the Cincinnati Bengals are sitting there looking left and right and saying, uh, shoot, you know, we kind of <laughs> missed our opportunity to get out of this number five spot because we don't need to be there if we don't need a quarterback. Um, And they also have a left tackle they just took two years ago in Jonah Williams. So is Penny Sewell even an option there? So I would be putting out ads in the paper saying, come trade with us. And I'm not even certain that the dolphins are done trading uh, out of that spot. I even think, what are they at six right now? Yep. That they could end up trading back further and still getting the similar player that they were looking at. And that's kind of the conversation with the Eagles at six in the market for Pitts Smith, Chase Waddle should be a couple of those options available at 12 as well. Uh, Maybe it's a little bit more into the cornerback market of JC Horn and Sertan. uh, But I would be shocked if all those receivers and pits all went in the top 12. It's just not possible with it projecting to look like you're going to have five quarterbacks go in the top eight picks. Um, And I know there's some teams like Carolina at eight and Washington and New England that are sitting there saying, shoot, if we need a quarterback, we better go get one. Uh, we better trade up. So I think the movement is just beginning.
1: Yeah, one month out from the draft and it all begins, man. It's, it's as if the NFL draft needed to become any more interesting. I think we've already accomplished that this year. Ben Finnell, you said it all. He's at Ben Finnell, underscore NFL on Twitter. Does work for NFL Network, the Eagles, ESPN. You're everywhere, Ben. Appreciate your time today, man. We'll do it again soon and, uh, and, and have fun the rest of this draft season and we'll see you at the end of April.
0: Thanks again, Travis
1: and away he goes what a fun podcast that was we both joked a little bit afterwards and we went long but who cares like it's it's more content for you guys more more audio for you guys to get here on the drive time podcast we're going to continue doing this all draft season long three shows a week we'll probably pick it up for five shows a week the week of the draft and of course have recaps each day after the draft as well so plenty of content coming your way plenty of draft content here on the drive time podcast as for today's time that is going to be my time you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on apple podcast spotify wherever you get your podcast from go ahead and leave us a rating leave us a review check out the audible and the fish tank podcast follow me on twitter at wingfield nfl follow the team at miami dolphins and of course miamidolphins.com until next time fins up